it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Sven Sefström sounded like he was chatting with an old buddy as he wondered aloud when he should finally kick his smoking habit. Sven was amid a group of six people who had only met a few days earlier, but who now found themselves talking about all sorts of matters, both meaningful and trivial. They talked about the meaning of life, the role of prisoners in society, whether criminals were born or made. And after Sven complained about how dank and unpleasant the room around them had become after hours of cigarettes, they talked about smoking. One of the others in the group told Sven he could quit smoking whenever he wanted. Sven didn't seem satisfied with that response. If it were so simple, he said, everyone would just up and quit. The reply came quickly. Everyone? I'm talking about you, aren't I? To police officers eavesdropping on the conversation, the back and forth seemed like two old friends taking jabs at each other. But the person answering Sven was no friend of his. It was, in fact, one of his captors. On Thursday, August 23, 1973, Jan-Erik Olsen had taken Sven, a bank employee, and three female co-workers as hostages in a bizarre plot that not only marked the first time such major breaking news unfolded on live TV in Sweden, but that would also become the origin of a newly identified mental phenomenon named after the city in which it occurred, Stockholm Syndrome. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. A quick acknowledgement. I'm not Swedish. And while I've visited a few of its neighbors, I've never actually been to Sweden. And even if I had been, that still wouldn't guarantee I'd nail all these names. In short, apologies in advance if I bungle something. I'm doing my best and mean no disrespect. With that out of the way... August in Europe is vacation time. 
The days are longer and many people go on weeks-long holidays leaving work in the capable hands of subordinates or nowadays voicemail. In the 1970s, before cell phones and even widespread use of answering machines, sometimes you could call an office and it would just ring and ring, no one there to answer. People would be out of town and out of touch. In Sweden, there can be up to 18 hours of night and winter, so August is also a time to really cherish the last of the long summer days. August is when the Swedes have their traditional kreftwilba, or crayfish dinners. Partiers are required to wear crayfish party hats, bibs, and sing traditional songs with each round of drinks. There are lanterns and streamers and special jokes they tell. It's when you get really close with friends and build memories together. Some say it's the only time you see a Swede let loose. From a video of a crayfish party. But the stars of the party are, of course, our little hard-shelled friends. Cooked with ale and dill. These succulent shellfish are quite the treat. But novices might find them a bit tricky to eat. When in doubt, ask a Swedish friend. And this one you can also eat. Remember, we've been cracking crayfish since we were kids. But August isn't just slow on the work front. It's often slow for news, too. When Sven Sefström showed up for work at the bank on August 23, 1973, Sweden had just two TV channels that didn't broadcast 24 hours. Radio and newspapers were more prevalent, of course, but there weren't a ton of newsworthy stories for them to tackle. The prime minister was running for re-election in three weeks, which got good if dry coverage, as did the ongoing health problems of the country's 90-year-old King Gustav VI Adolf, who was in the hospital expected to die at any moment. Because of that possibility, Radio Sweden had a live feed truck ready to broadcast the lowering of the flag at the palace as soon as it happened. Generally, though, the missives about the king were pretty boring. A lot of repetitive, nothing has changed type updates. What all this meant was that the morning chit chat at Sverius, which, by the way, just means Swedish and Swedish, Credit Bank, the main branch in Normam Storge, was mostly about upcoming crayfish parties in the king's health. 21 year old Elizabeth Oldgren would have had plenty to talk about on that front. She was excitedly looking forward to a crayfish dinner on Saturday night. Soon, however, it became clear that what had started as a pretty ho-hum Thursday was about to get really interesting. The bank had just opened. This is author David King talking to Inside Edition. A tall, muscular man wearing a wig, makeup, and a pair of sunglasses walked into the bank ripped out a submachine gun, fired it into the ceiling, and shouted, the party starts, down on the floor. Some people froze, some people ran. A few actually did what the armed man had said to do and dropped to the ground. The whole scene was wildly disorienting. The submachine gun fire had caused glass to shatter and chunks of plaster to fall from the ceiling. Soon, the man firing it slapped a battery-powered radio onto a counter and began blasting rock and roll music. It seemed his intention was to keep people from thinking straight, and for the most part, it worked, though some of the bank employees kept their wits about them enough to activate silent alarms to alert police to what had to have been a robbery. 
The first alarm to reach police came courtesy of Anita Bowman at Teller Window One. The armed man had a strange look about him. While you just heard David King say he was wearing a wig and makeup, the people in the bank didn't know that for sure. He had darkened his face with foundation, which slowly started to melt as he began sweating. His hair looked black and stringy. His mustache was unnaturally dark, too. As odd as he looked, though, his behavior was even more bizarre. He was a ball of constant motion, running around the lobby, swinging the submachine gun barrel at people and shouting that he would shoot disobeyers. In his other hand, he carried a full duffel bag. With rock music blaring, he stepped behind the counter and spotted employee Kristen Enmark under a desk next to co-worker Bo Nilsson. Get up, the armed man shouted over the music echoing around the marble room. Nilsson had been too stunned to move and was still in his desk chair, while Kristen had quickly ducked beneath the desk. The two were co-workers who had never really talked before, though Kristen, a stenographer, had just decided to remedy that. She'd always thought Nilsson in accounting was a good-looking guy, so she was taking a letter to him with hopes that the handoff might turn into a conversation. She was 23. She loved to read. Love music, the Beatles. Now she was being tied up by her office crush with whom she'd managed to talk for all of 30 seconds before he was ordered in what sounded like American-tinged English to bind her with a rope pulled from the gunman's duffel bag. When Nilsson's first attempt proved too loose for the gunman's liking, he was gruffly ordered to do them over again. Nilsson tied Kristen's arms while they were crossed across her chest, while her ankles were tied with her legs straight. The gunman, meanwhile, shifted moods so quickly that Kristen assumed he was on drugs. She later said, quote, I believed a maniac had come into my life. I believed I was seeing something that could only happen in America, end quote. That might sound unfair, but Kristen only knew of America, which she had seen in movies, and bank heists were a pretty common trope by the early 1970s. Not only that, but violence of any sort just wasn't common in Sweden. At this point in history, Sweden was at the height of its, quote, international renown as a progressive socialist country praised for its peaceful achievements, end quote. That's how David King wrote about it in his book about this case. Crime was relatively low, poverty was even lower, and the country, which had remained neutral in both world wars, hadn't been involved in warfare in some 200 years. Still, things weren't totally peachy either. While still being low, crime had begun to climb, and the Prime Minister Olaf Palm of the Social Democrats Party, which had ruled Sweden since the 1930s, was in real danger of losing control. The economy had taken a hit, the value of the krona had slipped, trade was languishing, and unemployment was on the rise. Palm, who had been prime minister for four years, faced serious threat of being unseated. Not that Kristen had time to think about any of that. Her main concern was this madman with a gun who laughed in between his shouted commands. Kristen was soon joined on the floor by Brigida Lundblad, who was likely along the lines of what you picture when you hear the phrase Swedish woman. She was blonde, attractive, and spoke perfect English, having worked as an au pair in England as a teenager. 
She worked in the International Bank Drafts Department and was what we would call a floater, someone who wasn't assigned to a specific branch, but rather bounced from branch to branch as needed. It was pure chance she landed in Normam's storage that day. Unlike Kristen, she was married with children, two daughters, ages three and one and a half. With her perfect attendance record, her reputation was stellar. She was considered a reliable worker and no-nonsense employee with a long career in banking ahead of her. She was efficient, too. Before her morning had been interrupted, she had planned to use her lunch break to shop for clothes for her daughters at a nearby sale she'd heard about. After Brigida was found, the gunman picked out his third hostage, Elizabeth Oldgren, who was... The youngest of the hostages, she had just turned 21. The gunman ordered Bo Nilsson to tie her up, too. By this point, with three hostages tied up inside of the bank, word had spread about the gunman and police officers from all over began heading that way. Most assumed this situation would be wrapped up before they even got there. Turned out, that was nowhere near the case. One of the first police officers to reach the Normam Storage Bank in Stockholm's financial district on August 23, 1973, was Torgny Wallström. While his partner stayed outside, Wallström entered the bank with his pistol drawn. It was a big enough building, standing six stories tall with several entrances and exits, that staying hidden wasn't impossible if he entered quietly. Wallstrom took cover behind a counter in the loans department and scoped out the scene. He saw the gunman holding one young blonde woman in front of him as a human shield near two other bound women. Wallstrom inched forward, but the gunman spotted him and opened fire. Wallstrom jumped over the counter to find shelter in another department where he found about 10 employees quietly hiding. About 10.30 a.m., so nearly half an hour after the silent alarm had been triggered, the people inside the bank finally heard sirens. The gunman, sounding almost jovial, blurted in English, What a fucking long time it took for them to get here. A police sergeant named Morgan Rylander entered the bank cautiously while identifying himself. The gunman didn't seem interested in his name. Are you a high police officer? the man asked meaning high-ranking, not, you know, stoned. Rylander replied, No, but I can bring you one. Okay, do so, the gunman said. Around the same time Rylander set off to find a bigwig, another officer entered the bank. This one was a plainclothes inspector named Ingmar Warpfelt. He and some other officers used an alternate access point to the building that led straight to the second-floor executive suites, which in turn had a staircase that led down to the first-floor lobby. While the other cops seemed to be trudging through molasses to reach the lobby, Warp felt waltzed right past them. He took cover behind a marble column and listened as the seemingly crazed gunman shouted orders. Suddenly, the gunman popped into view. He was only 20 feet from Warpfelt, who had his gun outstretched and aimed in his direction. The robber had no idea he was in someone's crosshairs, but the woman he was using as a human shield spotted Warpfelt and screamed. 
Wurpfeld screamed at the gunman to drop his weapon. The gunman responded by dropping to one knee behind the teller counter and firing a single shot that went into Wurpfeld's hand between the middle and index fingers, shattering some of the bones in the back of his hand. Despite having worked on the Stockholm police force for more than 30 years, this was the first time Wurpfeld had ever been injured on the job. He retreated. By this time, the phones were all ringing and sirens were blaring outside the windows. Finally, the gunman made his demands. He wanted money, which seemed to make sense. It was a bank robbery, after all. And the cash he demanded was beyond what a typical bank would keep on hand. He demanded three million Swedish crowns, which was about three times the amount an average worker in Sweden could hope to earn in an entire lifetime. Today, the amount translates to some $4.5 million in American dollars. But that wasn't all the gunman demanded. He also wanted police to free a prisoner named Clark Olofsson. Clark Olofsson was one of the most notorious criminals in Sweden at the time. He was a bank robber, a celebrity. He was a media star. He was known for these daring bank robberies, these breaks out of prison, leading police on manhunts. It was the request for Olofsson's release from prison that made bank employee Bo Nilsson realize this was no ordinary bank robbery, and fear finally set in. Lucky for Nilsson, the gunman had a plan, and it didn't include him or most of the other people who had the misfortune of being in the bank that morning. He wanted to keep the three women hostage, and he wanted the rest to get the hell out of there. So Nilsson fled followed by most everyone else. A few stragglers, apparently paralyzed by shock or fear, continued to trickle out as negotiations continued. At some point, the gunman switched the radio he had brought with him from music to news and asked the women to translate the broadcast from Swedish to English so he could understand. The news captivated audiences worldwide. That mobile unit at the palace to cover the flag lowering was immediately rerouted to Normanstorg for live updates. This is the bank in Stockholm where the uh, robber has barricaded himself. He is equipped with a machine gun and he has several people as ransom in there. He has already shooting one policeman in the hand while the policeman tried to overtake him and the other ones had to escape and run for cover. And since then, nobody has really been able to see him. Meanwhile, police were trying to figure out whether they should grant this odd request for Clark Olofsson to be taken from prison and brought to the bank. Curious if Clark was actually in on this heist, police interviewed him. In front of them, they sat pictures of the man they had deduced was the bank gunman. Based on his appearance and his rap sheet, which included a bank heist with Clark just seven months earlier, they'd landed on Kai Hansen, a 21-year-old robber from southern Sweden. Kai should have been in prison, but it so happened that in July, he feigned being sick, persuaded authorities to ship him to a hospital, and climbed out of a window to freedom. Maybe Clark had been in touch with Kai, and the two of them orchestrated this weird-ass plot as a way to get Clark sprung from his own prison sentence. But after a few moments of talking, police began to think that Clark had no idea what was happening. They had learned through interviews with tangential people that Kai was unpredictable and violent. 
But he listened to and idolized Clark, and he might have felt guilty that they'd been pinched in the earlier heist because he'd flubbed the thing, so police thought, oh, maybe he's trying to make amends by demanding Clark's release. And since Clark was known to be able to handle the guy, maybe they could convince Clark to go in and calm Kai down, thereby saving these hostages' lives. Back at the bank, police delivered some money to the man they thought was Kai Hansen. It was half the amount he had demanded, and it was all in new, crisp, consecutive bills, which of course would be easy to trace and therefore deemed useless by the gunman. Trade these out for old bills, he demanded, and he asked for food and drink. Eventually, some came. This seemed to calm the hostages a bit because their captor could have shrugged off any hunger pangs they were feeling, but he didn't. Soon after, some of the hostages began needing to use the restroom. At first, the gunman said to use a wastebasket, but he eventually relented and did something very bold. He let Elizabeth walk alone to the bathroom. He scolded her to return to him, which amazingly worked. This bank was laid out in such a way that it wouldn't have been tough at all for Elizabeth to flee to safety, but she worried about what would happen to the two other women if she did. So she came back. Then Kristen went to the bathroom, followed by Brigida. Each returned, and each was unharmed. But they were alarmed by what they saw in the hallways. Police officers were hiding in all the nooks and crannies, wearing bulletproof vests and helmets and carrying submachine guns. That was the first time the women thought they might be in more danger from the police than they were from their captor. Finally, Clark Olafson arrived. He took a long look at the man with a gun and seemed to place him. Then the two embraced, and the mood in the room finally lightened up. And the gunman began to speak, in Swedish. Finally, the hostages knew that their captor wasn't American after all. He'd been faking. He had a dialect that pointed to him having been raised in southern Sweden, just like the man police believed he was, Kai Hansen. Anyway, the two men talked about whatever plan the gunman had in mind, after which Clark took a tour of the bank, checking out back rooms that had previously been overlooked. When he returned, he brought with him a surprise. It turned out they had a fourth hostage. Hours into the hostage situation at the Stockholm Bank, Sven Sefström was led from a back room by Clark, who suggested to his gun-toting friend that he could maybe use a fourth hostage for further leverage with the police. Poor Sven was another floating bank employee, and this had marked his first day ever working at this branch. None of the women knew him. He'd just so happened to be in a back room when he heard the initial gunfire and stayed where he was hoping to ride out the whole ordeal unnoticed. Now he was caught right in the middle of it. But strangely, it didn't seem as scary as he had expected. The women hostages were, for the most part, calm. Clark and the gunman, who reporters had been repeatedly told by police was most certainly Kai Hansen, seemed in good spirits. The only time people tensed up was when the police came around. The gunman tacked more items onto his list of demands. He wanted booze, cigarettes, and also a getaway car, specifically a blue Ford Mustang. The latter was provided, much to the chagrin of the cop who owned it. But the police weren't dummies, so while they promised Clark and, er, Kai, safe passage, 
They rigged the car's fuel gauge to read that it was full when in reality it had less than a gallon of gas in it. The criminals weren't dummies either, and they insisted that when they left the bank, they be allowed to take two hostages with them as insurance. The cops wouldn't just open fire on them and kill them as they fled. The police said, no dice, beans and rice. You can leave. We'll let you get out of here safely. But under no circumstances can you take any of the hostages. At one point in this negotiation, the police wanted Sven, the hostage, to deliver the bad news and to talk the robber into surrendering. He declined. Both sides refused to budge on the matter, and it's this sticking point that turned what might have been a scary afternoon into a six-day ordeal. Police snipers surround the bank. The criminals retreat with the hostages into the bank's vault. Here, the story goes from strange to straight-up crazy. Inside the vault, which was a big room but felt small thanks to a ton of furniture and safety deposit boxes stored inside of it, Clark and the gunman began calling journalists and giving interviews. Clark also called the prime minister and said, hey, tell them to let us leave with these hostages or else this guy I'm with, whose name he hadn't confirmed, is going to go crazy and shoot everyone. Night came and the crew slept in the vault. The gunman and Clark offered coats and shirts to the women to make the ground more comfortable. At some point, when police had punted on providing food for the better part of a day, the gunman pulled out some pears he'd brought with him and sliced them up for all to share. Meanwhile, Kai Hansen's mother put a plea out via the media for her son to stop this, give up, quit before someone gets hurt. Kai's brother arrived and, with the police's blessing, went into the lobby to try to talk to Kai. He was met with gunfire. Rattled but unharmed, he was soon surrounded by police back on the second floor trying to talk to his brother on the telephone. After he heard the voice of the man he'd been told was Kai, he blurted, quote, You fucking idiots, you have the wrong guy, end quote. It would be hours more before police finally accepted that he was right. It took a phone call from escaped convict Kai Hansen himself, threatening to sue the police for libel for them to say, oh, geez, maybe we're wrong. The man with the gun was a different escaped felon named Jan Olsen, better known as Yane. He was a career criminal, but he didn't worry police nearly as much as Kai had because Yane had once made the news for retrieving an old man's heart medication to keep him from going into cardiac arrest as he robbed the old man's house. The police scoffed. They thought they'd been dealing with a stone-cold criminal, when really he was a pussycat with sticky fingers. So police did something rash. From BBC Sounds. A policeman creeps inside and slams the vault door shut locking both hostages and captors inside. This is where it gets weird. Now imagine how this could have gone. Four hostages, whose lives police were supposedly trying to save, were locked by police into a windowless vault with the men threatening to kill them. Imagine if the captors had killed one of those hostages, or all of them, and this was a huge risk. But... The cops were right in thinking that the captors were either more humane than they wanted people to believe and or they didn't want to lose their leverage. But this decision to trap the hostages with Yane and Clark did something police couldn't have predicted. 
it solidified for the hostages the feeling that their captors were more concerned about their well-being than were the police. It became a clear us-versus-them situation. As the hours dragged on, they continued to kill time by talking about everything. Their home lives, their childhoods, their families. Kristen, the 23-year-old music-loving hostage who had managed to stay surprisingly calm throughout this ordeal, called the Prime Minister herself. Hello. Talking to Prime Minister Palm, Kristen said that she and another of the women hostages wanted to leave with their captors. Palm was naturally confused. Aren't you afraid of them? He asked. Kristen said, actually, what we're afraid of is the police's refusal to negotiate with them on this point because we're the ones stuck in the middle and, you know, we don't want to die. Palm said, no, that wasn't possible. These men weren't reasonable and couldn't be negotiated with. Besides, he reportedly said, wouldn't you feel pride to die at your post? Kristen replied, I do not want to be a dead hero. Neither changed the other's mind. Most of Kristen Enmark's conversation with the Prime Minister ended up airing on the news, though not that one exchange where Palm basically told a 23-year-old to buck up and embrace death. That part was censored. So what the public heard was Kristen sounding insolent toward a top official supposedly trying to save her life, and Kristen sounding a bit nuts by saying she trusted her captors more than the police. Let's be clear here. These hostages did trust their captors more, but that wasn't really saying much. Yanni at one point was so determined to prove to police that he was serious that he concocted a plan to shoot the male hostage Sven in the leg in front of police on the stairs. It didn't happen, but in that moment, Sven thought, geez, what a kind guy, he's just gonna shoot me in the leg for show. But the truth is, this was traumatizing. Still, at least Yanni seemed to give a shit about whether his hostages lived or died. And those hostages hadn't seen much evidence that the police cared at all. After chatting with the prime minister, Kristen talked on the phone with a few reporters saying she was willing to go with her captors. They hadn't mistreated anyone yet. The hostages' real fear was the police, not the robbers, and so forth. All of this was aired in breathless news coverage marking the first time this kind of news event unfolded on live TV in Sweden. Reporters camped outside the bank. Police went days without getting anything more than catnaps for sleep. Some wore the same clothes for days. And then the people trapped inside the vault heard drilling. David King again. The police began to drill holes in the ceiling of the vault as Olsen tried to keep them at bay. So he has the idea he's going to rig up a bomb. And he does that and and blows up the drill. So that stops it for a little while. So they're all very happy. And then the police, they get another drill. So they keep drilling and they keep drilling. Yane and Clark demanded to know what the point of the drilling was, but they were never given satisfactory answers. Yane became convinced, rightly, that the plan was to pump the vault with tear gas, which he was certain, wrongly, would scramble everyone's brains and leave them vegetables. He was terrified of this prospect. He said he'd rather die. In fact, he told the others, I won't let you suffer that fate. This gas would leave you brain dead in 90 seconds. 
If they use gas, I'll shoot you myself to spare you that fate. It was both oddly sweet, yet utterly terrifying at once. But then, Yanni came up with another idea. From his bag, he pulled out wire and fashioned four nooses. He slipped the nooses over the necks of the hostages and secured the other end of the wire to the top of the safety deposit boxes. Yanni then... Makes him stand up and tells the police, okay, if you send in gas, the hostages will be the first to die and it will be your fault. Because see, the gas would make the hostages lose consciousness, causing them to fall and hang themselves on their odd little makeshift gallows. This was explained to the police multiple times by Yane, by Clark, and even by Sven, who said, look, if you pump gas in here, you don't need to worry about saving us because we'll be dead and you can bury us where we land. And the police, whoa, what are we gonna do now? They want to confirm this smartly. So maybe he's bluffing. No, but they send a camera down through one of their holes and take a picture of the hostages. Once they realized it wasn't a bluff, the police backed off the tear gas for the time being. Maybe they had underestimated Yanni after all. Maybe he wasn't as soft as they believed. The hostages certainly sounded terrified as they pleaded with police not to gas them. But maybe they weren't as afraid as they sounded. Clark later said he assured them he wouldn't let them die that way. We agreed upon it. I said, if something happens, jump off it or I cut you loose. Now let me explain just where Clark is speaking here. I found a Swedish video showing a tour guide explaining the whole bank heist ordeal to a bunch of tourists outside of the bank. Clark Olofsson, by then a gray old man, sidled up to the group and corrected the tour guide when he got something wrong. At first, the tour guide acted as if this old bugger was just some know-it-all interrupting his tour, and he brushed him off. You can hear that when the tour guide held up a photo and Clark said, That's me. That's you there. Okay, I'm growing a beard to try and look like this guy, actually, so here we go. Clark obviously survived this ordeal. So did Yane. And so did each of the four hostages. After holding back on the tear gas for a while, police finally reached a point where they felt they had no choice. On August 28th, they began pumping in the gas. Lucky for everyone involved, Yane did not put anyone out of any preemptive misery. You could just hear the screams, the cough, it's burning their eyes, burning their skin, going, you know, affecting the nose, the lungs, respiratory system. It's uh, not pleasant. It takes over 30 minutes before they can finally get everybody out. Police wanted Clark, whom they by now considered a turncoat accomplice, and Yane out first, but the hostages refused. They encircled the men to ensure that police didn't, quote-unquote, accidentally shoot them. They wanted their captors out alive. And when they spoke to media, they were far more critical of police than Clark and Yane, which of course piqued curiosity. It was hard for outsiders to wrap their heads around why this group of people wasn't more appreciative of police's efforts to get them out alive. But the hostages felt like police were the ones endangering them to begin with. Niels Bejero was a psychiatrist who had been working with police over the course of the standoff to try to suggest strategies that would keep Yane calm. It was his brilliant idea, in fact, to shut the hostages inside of a windowless vault with a man who'd threatened to kill them. As Kristen Enmark grew more and more vocal about how badly police botched the situation, 
Bejro, who was responsible for a lot of the decisions police had made, said clearly Kristen wasn't in her right mind. A few years after the ordeal, Bejro first mentioned the term Normemstorge syndrome, which later morphed into the easier-to-say term Stockholm syndrome. But it wasn't until another story we've covered on Crimes of the Centuries that the term caught on. Was she the innocent young girl who was brainwashed? Not herself when she robbed the bank, which under American law would be sufficient grounds for acquittal? Or was she Tanya, the willing revolutionary, who is now trying to save her skin? The first time Stockholm Syndrome appears as a phrase in my database of American newspapers is after the 1974 kidnapping of Patty Hearst, who spent nearly two years with her captors, members of the Symbionese Liberation Army, and began committing crimes alongside them. The term has come to generally refer to people, usually women, who fall in love with their captors, usually men. Nothing Kristen Enmark said about the ordeal could be taken seriously after that because Bejereau, a highly regarded psychiatrist, had labeled her as sick. Without even interviewing her himself, and she had offered to talk with him directly, Bejereau basically said she was delusional, she'd been manipulated. Any criticism she had toward the police had been planted in her mind by brainwashing criminals. They also implied that she had been raped. Apparently, one night in the vault, Kristen screamed, Stop! Stop! Yane yelled at Clark, who was near Kristen, What the hell are you doing? Officers overhearing this assumed that Clark had assaulted Kristen when, she later explained, she had been having a nightmare and it had been Clark who calmed her down. He held her hand. The only inappropriate contact of that sort that occurred, according to the hostages after the fact, came on the second night sleeping in the vault, when Yane cuddled Brigitte and apparently got aroused. She wasn't interested, she said, which he reportedly respected, but she gave him the go-ahead to take matters into his own hands. Of course, in retrospect, the consensus is that moments like those point to some mental manipulation having occurred, whether intentional or not. After all, this was a highly charged, incredibly tense situation, and these people were thrust together for days, sometimes with very little food, water, or sleep. And because they were stuck in this vault together, they had nothing to do but talk to pass the time. They shared life stories, dreams, and hopes with each other. They each promised Elizabeth she would live to see so many more crayfish parties, and they had to watch each other pee and poop. They slept sometimes huddled. Clark and Yane repeatedly demanded tampons for two of the women because their periods started in the vault. All of this undoubtedly messed with some of their minds. But author David King doesn't think it's fair to label whatever mental state they were in as a sickness. Do you really have to call it syndrome? Syndrome sounds like you know, signs or symptoms of a, a form of a distinct clinical picture of a disorder. But is it really a disorder? I mean, again, if you can't overpower them, if you can't run, you can't hide, is that sick to want to live? I think the syndrome is probably not the best term. I think it's a, it makes a lot of sense as a survival strategy, as a coping mechanism. And I think the syndrome is misleading. And if you're not careful, it can come into blaming the victim. Kristen especially felt villainized by the term. She wasn't treated like a victim. No one seemed to understand what she endured. No one, that is, except Yane and Clark. And she actually credited Clark with saving her life. 
She believed he calmed Yane down. He'd comforted her when she'd been upset. He'd argued with police to listen to her when they seemed to refuse. There were less flattering facts that Kristen didn't know, like that it was Clark's idea to keep the male hostage Sven rather than free him after he was found in a back room. And it was Clark who told the police to ignore the women and just negotiate with him. But after the ordeal, she found herself thinking about Clark again and again. Yane was sentenced to 10 years in prison. None of the hostages agreed to testify against him. He eventually wrote a book. Clark also was convicted and had time added to his sentence too, but he appealed and eventually his lawyers successfully argued that he was only in this situation to help ensure the hostages weren't harmed, and they weren't. He went back to prison only to finish out his original sentence for the bank heist with Kai, I'm definitely not the gunman, Hansen. Clark went back to prison, escaped in 1975, sailed the Mediterranean for months, and then, in March 1976, committed the largest single-person bank robbery in Swedish history in Gothenburg, where he made off with more than 900,000 crowns. He'd be in and out of prison for the next four decades, finally being released for good, question mark, in 2018, allowing him to harass a poor tour guide who did finally realize that the old man was indeed Clark Olofsson. Hang on, hang on, hang on. You were released, weren't you? Yeah. <laughs> I'm shaking here. I'm shaking here. <laughs> oh, you man, dynamite. my God. It's all full circle of your tour. Then I'll let this loot for store. This is, this is the pinnacle of tour guide. I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm going to quit after this. I've got to give you a hug, man. I've got to give you a hug. <laughs> you're a superstar. Yeah. So you're... Clark and Kristen connected by mail within months of the hostage situation, even before Clark escaped. Their letters started out fairly benign, but quickly grew intimate. They met up one day for coffee while Clark was on furlough. They spent that night in a hotel and Kristen went to prison to meet with him a few times. Their romance fizzled pretty quickly. Clark wasn't a one-woman man, but about seven years after the hostage fiasco, Kristen's thoughts turned to motherhood, and she asked Clark to father a baby for her, no strings attached. Clark agreed, but Kristen lost the baby in a miscarriage. In 2016, she wrote a book, though I couldn't read it because I could only find it in Swedish. Sven visited Yanni in prison several months after Normim's storage. They had a friendly talk, he said, and Sven gave Yanni a chess set. Brigida later credited the experience with making her a stronger person. After it was over, she went back to work at the bank, which had merged with another under a new name until 1974 when that branch closed. She stayed with the overall company for 30 more years until her retirement. But to be clear... While the hostages generally didn't harbor the ill will against their captors that you might expect, they didn't survive unscathed. Several have described PTSD-like symptoms to journalists and authors over the years. Elizabeth eventually had to stop giving interviews altogether because it was just too hard. Kristen found herself suffering from nightmares, wanting the lights on and interior doors open in her home. She avoided movie theaters and subways. She flinched when she heard police or ambulance sirens. She told King, the author, that she became, quote, afraid of being so afraid again, end quote. 
In an interview with King, Clark was clearly less traumatized. King asked what he thought about the ordeal after all these years. Without hesitation, Clark answered, quote, Fuck, it was very fun, end quote. To research this story, I had help from Justin Hayward Lines, who was a skinny little cellist when I met him back in elementary school. He pulled together the skeleton of the story based on a variety of accounts that included the bank drama, a November 1974 story by Daniel Lang that appeared in The New Yorker. He and I both read David King's Six Days in August, the story of the Stockholm Syndrome, which my son noted must be a page-turner because I kept saying I would stop reading after just one more paragraph. I also watched a film called Stockholm that fictionalizes the ordeal, but I gotta say, it not only depicted things incorrectly, which of course is expected to a degree, but it made up stupid stuff while leaving out some really interesting parts. Just saying. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod, and check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs>